Hello and welcome to Nobody Asked For This. I am Marilyn Minton and today I'm really lucky to be joined by my friend Allie Romig. Allie is a young adult fiction editor at Penguin Random House and she's also the co-author of the Substack The Yearning, a fantastic newsletter on queer media where she's published amazing reviews of shows like Sex Lives of College Girls, A League of Their Own, Losa Spookies, and other funky documentaries that I have not seen yet. Allie has joined us today to talk about an unexpected queer icon, a robot doll named Megan. <laughs> but before we get to that discussion that I'm extremely excited for, I wanted to start out by asking you what compelled you to start your newsletter, The Yearning? Oh, a little background. Um, oh, background. <laughs> I wanted to start the yearning with my good friend Meg because um, during the pandemic I actually lived with Meg for a little bit of time in New York and one of my favorite parts about that time was the mornings like Saturday or Sunday mornings where we'd literally just sit on the couch and watch something on TV or watch a movie and then spend hours discussing what we thought about uh, what we had just seen. And those discussions would also lead into discussions about our own queer awakenings and our childhoods and our friendships with other people and um, how we'd kind of come into our own identities. And over time, we just kind of figured, you know, this is a really fulfilling and fun part of our friendship, of our lives, and something that we look forward to and something that endlessly interests us, of course. Um, so we just kind of figured we'd spin that into a newsletter. We were both also looking for kind of um, creative outlet and it just seemed like the right time. I, I had been looking for something like this for many years and I know you know this since we're old friends, but I can talk about television for an ungodly amount of time. So I just figured maybe if I actually put some of those thoughts down to put into words on paper, um, into the, you know, internet, whatever you want to say, um, that maybe it would be a more creative feeling um, way to, to channel those thoughts. Something I really love about what you guys are doing um, that I'm trying to do over here and nobody asked for this is kind of paying your respect both to the more serious media and also engaging with the silliness. Um, I think that is one of the strengths, like thinking about giving, you know, a serious long review to a show like Sex Lies of College Girls, which is ultimately quite silly <laughs> in a lot of ways we've talked about that, um, but paying some serious attention to all the parts of the plot, um, that's something I really admire about what you guys are doing over there. Well, thank you. <laughs> and I'm also really glad that you brought that up because I feel like that is something that we try to do. And pretty much our ethos with picking media is obviously it has to be queer, but then it also just has to be something that interests us. And that's basically the only parameters for when we're picking media to discuss. And I think with the sillier media that we review, we try not to take any... I know we've discussed this a lot, but like looking at everything within its genre. So if I'm reviewing the sex lives of college girls, I'm not looking at it with the same um, uh, viewpoint as if I were reviewing Tar. You know, like I'm taking everything, I'm meeting everything where it's at, or at least I'm trying mm -hmm. to. And yeah. I think that that's really important because some people will 
write a review that's just tearing down like a fun campy show and completely missing the point of the show. Um, not to say that that's Sex Lives of College Girls, but just any show like Los Spookies, like that is a campy, fun, just kind of romp of a time. And so you're going to look at that with a different lens than you'd look you know, at even a show like A League of Their Own or something that is maybe a little bit, is trying to say something different and is trying to give the audience something different. So I think that's something really important just to look, to meet every piece of media where it's at and where it's coming from. Totally, totally. Um, well, we are in the thick of award season and because this is primarily, you know, a movies podcast that does pay special attention to the prestige awards fair... <laughs> Um, do you have a favorite movie of 2022? <clears throat> <laughs> um, I have to, since this is the Megan podcast, I did plan on revealing this at one point during this podcast, but I didn't think I'd do it so early. Um, mm. If I'm being honest, the first thing that I've seen in theaters since the pandemic is was Megan. <laughs> Why does that not shock me at all? As I prepared to say this question, I was thinking, like, well, Allie hasn't texted me about any movies, so I don't know if she's been going. Yeah, no, I don't want this to discredit me as, you know, uh, as someone who um, kind of reviews film and television. I, oh, as you know, I've always been a little bit more biased towards television. I'm a little bit of a boob tube person. <laughs> Is that a boob tube? I've never I, heard that. That's what they used to call it because it was like the stupid, the stupid tube or whatever. I don't know. Um, anyway, I have always um, aired on the side of uh, television over film um, and, Ma- Megan, and, and Megan is the first movie that I've seen in theaters since the pandemic. There are definitely things, you know, I need to see Tar. I don't know why I haven't seen it yet. I think that it's actually um, a personal failing. Um, and it's probably my most toxic trait. Um, wow. But, yeah. I think that's okay. You know, all of the movies this year that are up for awards, 75% of them are two and a half hours plus. Um, which I think is a toxic trait of Hollywood to think that anyone who doesn't work in this industry would want to spend that time in the cinema. So I can't judge you for that. Um, are there any shows you've been watching lately that you're excited about? And if the answer is RuPaul, that's fine. I mean, the answer is RuPaul, which I, I, I say, you know, with some hesitation, because obviously RuPaul's Drag Race has a torrid history of being kind of problematic, and I can absolutely acknowledge that. But much like you and The Bachelor, um, it's something that you, you watch, you know, critically, but you also find, you know, a type of joy in, and that's how I feel about RuPaul's Drag Race. Season 15 did just start. It's kind of a mess. Um, they are making the episodes shorter because it's now on MTV, so they only have 45 minutes for an episode, and yet they've decided to put more queens than ever before into the season, so I don't really know who is making the strategic you know, decisions. Sorry, what length was it before? Um, it would go um, over an hour before. Um, so, like, did they not have to conform to? Well, v- so it was on. It was on VH1, and I, I guess there was VH1 just VH1 doesn't care. I know. I guess. Well, I I, I don't know. I, that's actually a good question. I guess I just kind of 
glossed over that. Maybe it was an hour and a half, but it would go straight into Untucked, which is like the RuPaul after show show, if you've ever heard of it. Um, but MTV is doing something sneaky where they're putting Ru RuPaul's Drag Race on, then WeHo, which is a um, reality show about gay men in West Hollywood, and then they're doing Untucked. So they're really trying to um, use the fact that they're sandwiching this new show in between Untucked and RuPaul's Drag Race to get more viewers and sneaky, kind of sneaky. force um, gay people to sit in a... Um, you know, bar for three hours straight on Friday nights, uh, which mm. honestly I would do anyway, but it's fine. Um, you know what else is coming back on MTV that is thrilling to me as a straight? Are, are you, you the, the one? one? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> last night, last night um, we got a notification. Are you the one season nine now streaming on Paramount Plus? And when I tell you the entire house like went quiet, like we were, you know, I've, I've been in a little bit of a funk, and when we got that notification, it was like this, the sun came out for the first time in 2023, and then I quickly realized it's coming out week by week on MTV, and like, Are You the One should only be binged, so my joy was quickly kind of taken away, but I'm excited to be watching something on MTV as well. You know, if you don't binge Are You The One, I do feel like you would maybe lose momentum a little bit. Like, I Just feel like bit. you kind of have to, it's one of those things where you like have to run over coals really fast or else you're in pain. You know what I mean? That's, well, that's I mean, that's the boat I'm in right now. It's a crazy month for me because Love Island came back on Monday in the UK. In the US, it doesn't start streaming until two weeks later on Hulu. So... All my American friends are like, how are you watching this? I use means that I won't be sharing on the podcast. Um, but now I'm watching it day by day. No one else in the U.S. is watching it. And I'm just kind of in this lonely hole where I'm like, why am I watching this? It doesn't make sense in the non-binge format. Um, but it'll get juicy soon. And then next week, The Bachelor comes back. So... Listeners, great new content coming your way. Very serious prestige things to analyze. Sometimes you just have to give yourself over to the stuff that is on the boob tube, as they will say. Absolutely. But Absolutely. Um, one, before we move on from television shows that I would recommend, I do actually have a real one. I don't think RuPaul's Drag Race like is in desperate need of viewers. So what I will say is... Um, a sort of on HBO Max. I just started watching that um, show and my partner at The Yearning just uh, finished that show and wrote her review of the show, um, which went out today. And I've only watched a few episodes of the first season, but I think it is a dry, witty, funny, slice of life show that um, more people should be talking about. It's, you know, it's young person in a city but it's not like you know white woman in new york what it's trans femme uh pakistani american person in toronto but it's still just as funny as all those other comedies that we all know about and um just like looking at their lived reality and and the uh, person who plays the main character is also the creator and it's just a really mm -hmm. beautiful digestible 20 minute you know show you can you can absolutely binge it um but you also get something out of it i think that's the show that i would recommend because i think more people should be talking about it 
sort of on HBO Max. Yes, right? sort of on HBO Max. I had not seen literally anything about this until you guys posted it, um, which is kind of insane. And I'm just waiting for the article where they're like sort of canceled and removed from the platform because that's all that HBO Max is doing right now. Well, in a miracle, um, or not a miracle, I mean, it very much deserved this, but in a miracle that, you know, the suits at HBO Max didn't, you know, make a horrible decision, it was just remo- uh, it renewed, was renewed for season three. Yeah. They said goodbye to Gossip Girl reboot. Hello, sort of season two. Okay, season three. Season three? Yeah. So there's two seasons out? Yep. And yep. I've never heard of it. So yep. that's awesome marketing. <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome marketing. Yeah. Awesome marketing, which is the perfect pivot to what I believe will be studied as the greatest marketing campaign of our time. And that is for the masterpiece, the modern masterpiece, future cult classic, Megan, which will be our main. You, what's that breathing you're doing? It was like a. I was trying, like a, to, I was trying to do like a stadium. Like a woo. Yeah. I just came out like a hot breath, so. Okay, good, good. Honestly, the first time that I became aware of Megan was sitting with you on the night that Midnight, Taylor Swift's most recent album, came out. And it really surprised me that Taylor Swift licensed one of her songs, It's Nice to Have a Friend, for the trailer, because as we know, she's quite sensitive about her music. Um, but I became aware of the film because between every lyric video, and I am ashamed to admit that we sat and watched the lyric videos, um, repeatedly. And just to be clear, Allie was not the, um, spearheading factor of that decision. That is all me. Um, anyway, between every single song on YouTube, they would play the trailer for Megan. So it has been in the ether since October, at least. Which yep. seems to me really key in um, in how it's performed. So, to take a quick a quick look at the numbers, it's reported that the film was made for twelve million dollars. I imagine the marketing budget was much higher, but anyway, the opening weekend it made thirty point two million dollars, and as we record right now, it's Thursday, January nineteenth. It has now made ninety six million dollars worldwide. This is an insane. This is an insane number. Um, like, we talked about Tar last time. That has made, like, $8 million. <laughs> no one went to see Babylon, my new favorite film of the year. No no one went to see The Fablemans, which, like, Steven Spielberg at least has some cachet. This is an insane number. It also has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> which, to be clear, I think people misunderstand Rotten Tomatoes scores to mean, like, 95% as in all critics gave it an A. Really, it's that 95% of critics viewed it generally favorably. So I was looking through some of the reviews, um, and like even Richard Brody at The New Yorker, who I'm shocked even chose to review Megan, like this is someone who only writes about the refined things. He wrote a review of Megan where he's like, yeah, it's silly and insubstantial, but it made me ponder like what it would like be like to be an AI. I was like, this is insane. So it's gotten incredible press. Um, and it's the first movie that you have seen since the pandemic. Can you set the scene for me on 
what compelled you to go to the movies for the first time in three years, where you were, who you were with, what that was like? Sure. So I actually, even more surprising than the fact that this movie got me into a theater was that this movie got me into a theater on a Key West vacation. I was on vacation when I went to see this movie. I went to the Regal Cinema of Key West to see this movie. I was about to ask, was it an AMC and what were the facilities like? Did they it was have a... the, the lean back chairs? Because I saw it in a plush lean back chair. Well, I, you know, I will say Regal... Um, <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I, I loved it. Um, <laughs> no, no shade to Regal. No, I loved it. Um, they don't have Nicole Kidman, so that's, you oh. know, strike against. But That's they... tough because my my cinema, my crowd, recited the Nicole Kidman monologue and gave it an ovation. Yeah, I really felt like I was missing something there. But um, other than that, the Regal really, you know, Loved it. Great facilities. There was a lean back chair. We had like a whole row to ourselves. So as I said, I was in Key West on vacation with with about nine people. Um, And uh, we are all queer people. And we just kind of were like, let's all go see Megan together. Um, Did you guys decide that before going on the trip? Or is it once you were there, you were like, oh my God, wait, it's opening weekend. Let's see Megan. Um, no, we decided that before we went. We like that specifically was, were like, we want to go see Megan with this group of people in Key West. Um, it was us and a family with like a mother and her maybe like 10 year old daughter um, who was very vocal throughout the film, I will say, which that is was. actually something that I miss about going to see a movie in theaters. It's kind of like the experience of being among strangers and like mm-hmm. watching them watch the film as well or being a part of their watching experience as well. Um, although my friend did have to shush the child because she was talking oh, a bit too loud. Um, is not in keeping with that energy <laughs> of Megan. Listen, yeah, I see... I see a lot of You can of only movies. let so much pa- like sl- pass by and then you have to like kind of be like hey no 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 I'm, I got to say it. I let a lot slide at my viewing of Megan. Um I go to a lot of films and a lot of them are empty. <laughs> <laughs> um that may have something to do with sometimes I go on like Tuesday mornings and why would there be anyone there? Um I went last Friday. The theater was filled. I texted my friend right like two hours before going, hey, do you want to go? She's like, no, we're actually seeing the showing at the exact same time in a different movie theater. I was like, great. Um, all of all of Los Angeles is at this film right now. Um, we get to the theater and I had not seen like 14 year olds passing around a flask in so long it was such a beautiful image. I hated that they were like texting the whole time and I did want to be like, turn off your phone. But like there was a kid next to us who just got up every five minutes to like pass around his flask and then people were like putting it in their slushy. It was fantastic. I That's what I want every movie going experience to be like. That's definitely what Babylon should be like. It should be like a cabal of chaos, but it only happens for Megan. It only happens for Megan. I will say one thing and that is I normally, you know, wouldn't shush a child, but they were literally just, and they were literally just repeating like what was happening on the screen. So processing. Um, Mm. Yeah, processing it, um, kind of just like, oh, 
and now like that person's here or something and i was just what if like, someone okay. in the family was was blind and they were explaining the action well did you think about that I didn't, okay, let me just reiterate, I was not the shusher in yeah, this you situation, be. You be. <laughs> but I will say that if it were me, or I'm specifically thinking about my mother in a theater talking at full volume, which, you know, she is known to do, I would want someone to shush her. <laughs> <laughs> I would oh want someone to God. feel comfortable enough to say, hey, we're experiencing this together right now and I need a little bit less from you. Mm, needing less. Mm, interesting. I mean, the screen was giving us so much that yeah. that's fair. You yeah. don't want to be overloaded. Um, I guess I'll throw out some some other pieces of information just in case listeners don't know. So Megan is a Blumhouse film. Uh, they produce a ton of horror and this is definitely not their first time turning out a low-budget, uh, rather silly thing and turning it into a $100 million extravaganza. Uh, so they do know what they're doing. It was also produced by James Wan, who is the architect of, like, the Saw franchise, Insidious, The Conjuring. Um, and the director is uh, a guy from New Zealand who's only had one other feature film that was in South by Southwest maybe, like, six years ago. Um, so he's having a great moment. <laughs> Um, and that's about the, that's about the auspices we have. I mean, of course, we also must mention Star Turn by Allison Williams, who is really making a name for herself as that white woman. Um, <laughs> and she delivers it so perfectly in this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree. She's found her... Her niche. Her niche, yeah. And I think what makes it, you know, I recently saw an article that I, I loved that was, like, debating whether she's self-aware or not. Like, debating mm. whether, like, she fully gets, like, what what it is she's she doing. And I, I do, but I think she gets it 90%. But she has to have that 10% where she doesn't get yeah. it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be as good as it is. You know what I mean? So true. That there 10%. is that little bit. There's that little bit of Marnie from Girls that will <laughs> always live inside her. Yeah. And if that didn't come from a genuine place that, like, I honestly understand as a fellow that white woman, I I agree with you. I think there's a small part that just is that person. Um, and that's what makes did, it so good. I mean, that's that what. So good. Yeah. We don't so want to. We don't want to lose that 10%. From her. We never do. We never want her to become fully sentient. I don't think... I feel like anyone listening is probably very aware of the plot of this film. But just in case they aren't. Um, so Allison Williams plays a toy maker. Um, a career that I had not previously pondered. And now I'm curious about. <laughs> I, I love that you describe it as a toy maker, which like to me evokes images of like an older man, like in a wood shop, kind of like malleting together like a small train. Um, I feel like she'd be like more more like a coder, like an engineer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But she's making toys. She's making toys. She's making toys. She's making toys. Um, And the film... The film opens in a way that immediately pulled me in where I was like, oh, I am actually no longer just here ironically. I very much trust in whatever the filmmaker is doing with this. So it opens with this horrifying commercial 
for the main toy that her company makes, which is called Furry Funky. Pets. Funky. Funky. Her company is called Funky, Funky, and then it's Funky Pets? Yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It opens with this absolutely bananas trailer about these little, like, robot Furby-looking things, um that you can buy for your child for a hundred dollars and they can like feed it pellets that it then poops out um it's just the most it's a fantastic fantastic opening um and then we move to the tragic circumstances yes i just want to say before we we move on from the opening I do have a funny story about that which is actually going to show the 10 percent that i you know of myself that mm. i'm not quite aware of because you know, earlier you I think it was real? You know, earlier I went on and on about how you know you shouldn't talk during a film. You shouldn't talk during a film. Well, someone in our group was talking during that part, and you know we were kind of like the movie started, and it was like, no, that's just a commercial. <laughs> like that was that's... the best part. It was so good. <laughs> No, I know. And it's like, it's so ridiculous, but it's also like, that is the kind of like deranged, um, like promo you'd see on Nickelodeon at like 1am. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It was like, it was the fever dream had already begun and I knew like we had left this realm, but we, we're in the upside down now. Like it's so close that it really could have just been an ad. And it, yeah, at that point I was already swept away. I was in um then we cut to you know the premise that i think everyone knows from the trailer which is that allison williams sister and that sister's husband die in a car accident while katie uh, creepy (laughs) creepy young katie i don't know she's eight years old and i swear to god that little actress has been playing that character for 20 years like I feel like I've seen her a million times play this role I don't know where they keep finding pale eight-year-old girls with long black hair that look like that and evoke the same feelings for me but I was like all right here we go it's a Katie um her parents die in a car accident naturally the only person to step in is Allison Williams who doesn't appear to have any other support system like friends parents other family members um and she brings she brings little katie to her palatial (laughs) lovely home for her a successful toy maker um and pretty immediately she's like katie i want you to feel welcome in the house but also i have a ton of work to do so if you could just like go to your room and entertain yourself that would be awesome and again, I was once again swept away because there were so many great moments with Allison Williams not wanting her to put her water on the table. <laughs> Just a lot of great mothering. Um, so naturally, as any toy maker slash coder slash engineer would do, she decides to um, offload the responsibility of parenting to her invention, uh, which in an earlier scene it was a doll that blew up and she says let's try this again um and rebuilds the doll uh which is called model three generative android which stands for megan i would also love to point out that i don't know if you noticed this but when they first show the doll and it kind of 
spontaneously combust and they're like talking about how the silicone that they bought for the face was like oh my god it's finally here like this was so expensive but then she just has like another one suddenly (laughs) (laughs) I had a lot of questions about that too one I was like why was it so expensive like what about this piece of silicone but then two yeah she just seemed to have have another another, have another option (laughs) lying Um, around And, you know, as Taylor Swift says, it's nice to have a friend. Katie immediately falls in love with Megan. Um, And Allison Williams' company also falls in love with Megan. They want her to replicate it and have millions of Megans around the world and make lots of money. And naturally, chaos ensues. Um, The film is delightful in many ways. uh, But the one kind of I guess, unexpected headline that has come out of this is people are heralding Megan as a queer icon. Um, And if you just search for, like, Megan updates, (laughs) look at news articles, all of them are talking about this. Um, An article in The Guardian is titled $100 million and a sequel in the works. Why has Megan become such a hit? Parentheses and a gay icon. Um, there was also an op-ed published today. It's January nineteenth in the New York Times by Eric Pippenberg, and the title is "A Doll That Wears Sunglasses with Attitude." Oh, Megan is a gay movie. <laughs> um, and then I also found a quote from the writer of the film, uh, a Kayla Cooper, who was explaining rather earnestly. <laughs> why she thinks there's a connection between the film and the gay community. She says, I actually asked one of my friends who is a gay man about that, and he was saying this setup is actually found family, where this little girl has lost her family and she has to go live with her aunt. Then this doll is also brought into the situation. That resonates for a lot of people in the gay community. The idea of found family. Um, Allie, quite simply, what's going on? (laughs) Is Megan a gay movie? (laughs) What does that question even mean? So first, I have to obviously start this with the caveat that like, like that man who who thinks that it's a found family narrative and that speaks to him. That's great. I'm speaking Mm -hmm. from my own thoughts and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to speak for anyone else, but I... (laughs) I do think that there is a queer sensibility about this film. I'll start with that. But I think that the sensibility is not anything as deep as it's a found family narrative or anything like that. I think it's just campy and ridiculous Mm -hmm. and that that speaks to a lot of, you know, queer viewers. Um, I mean, camp has always been a part of, you know, queer queer life and this movie is camp. Like when she dances, when she bursts out of this song, all these things that just like narratively don't necessarily make sense or come from anywhere. Like that is just camp. I think that the, whoever put the trailer together did a really smart thing. Genius. In, in putting her dance down the hallway into the trailer. I think if that dance hadn't been there, then I know that I, if I had been watching that trailer without that dance, I would have just been like, oh, roll my eyes, another killer doll movie, like mm-hmm. whatever. That dance changed the trajectory it changed of this. everything. It changed everything. It changed the trajectory of, of the, how this movie was seen in my eyes. I think people on Twitter, on Instagram, TikTok, wherever you, you know, 
kind of just like lost gaze at videos um, for hours. Um, <laughs> that dance was everywhere. that dance was everywhere, and it you know it was I've said this before, but it was campy, and mm-hmm. I do feel like in an attempt to kind of build on the momentum of gay audiences and gay viewers, queer audiences and queer viewers kind of latching on to um, just the pure chaos of the film that people have kind of been trying to copy paste these other things into the narrative Mm -hmm. that maybe aren't really there. Like, I don't buy the found family narrative. I mean, it's not really a found family. This girl it's is not. thrust onto her aunt who does not want to take care of her. I don't know it's what... It's simply not a found family that's, story at all. You know, that's not found family to me. When I think of found family, I think of someone wanting to take someone under their wing. And, you know, uh, Allison Williams' character could not be more um, reluctant <laughs> about this kind of, you know, uh, life change that's been, as I said, thrust upon her. So... I do feel like that's a bit of a reach. Um, I think that something else people point to, which is maybe a little bit more valid, is that killer dolls have been seen in the past as, you know, um, inherently queer. Um, Mm -hmm. I think of Chucky. um, But, you know, with Chucky, we have this thing where it's a queer creator and it's just obviously you know, high camp and there's a queer um, sensibility to the storytelling itself. So... You know. Okay, before we kind of add on to that, I would love to talk a little bit about what exactly camp means, because I think that's a term that gets thrown around a ton these days, and on TikTok and in Twitter, um, that definitely has, like, academic origins in what we mean by the term, which is not to say that that's the only way to think about it, but what do you mean when you evoke the term camp in media? Sure, and my, you know... My understanding of it, it might not be as researched as it could That's be. Um, I know it obviously in more of a everyday usage, but I mean, when I think about it, I just think that it means theatrical and kind of like exaggerated and a little bit chaotic even. Um, but it's like a wink, like it knows mm. that it's it's something that's like aware, it's self-aware, it's not just... Um, it's not just out of touch or um, being big for the sake of being big. There's a little bit of like a wink behind it, if that makes sense. So, um, so when I say, yeah, I think it's a lot yeah, to do with with irony as well. It's like the mm-hmm. the bringing of two, I don't know, melodrama and then horror and bringing different kind of genres and into. I don't know, into conflict with each other. Yeah. I think um, campiness is obviously inherently queer, and there are many horror films that evoke campiness um, in their storytelling, which obviously makes them just kind of be adopted into a queer lexicon um, more easily, even if the movie is not explicitly queer, which is where I think, you know, Megan sits because... You can make an argument for Allison Williams' character maybe being queer coded or there being some sort of tension between, you know, as Megan strokes everybody's hair and face and all that stuff. But she's a child doll, so I'm, I'm not going to go there. Um, I, but, I, that is interesting, though. I had not thought about Allison Williams' character in that way. And it's true. It's, it's definitely very intentional on the film's end that she 
is single, proudly so. I guess, she, you know, she mentions being on Tinder or Hinge. But um, you don't get any sense that she is, like, longing for a boyfriend or a husband. Like, yeah. maybe she's horny, but <laughs> I don't think she wants to share her house with anyone. And at the same time, maybe she's horny, but it's never explicitly stated whether she's horny Who for she's a man or a for. woman or, you know, whoever. So um, so they definitely keep that, you know, nebulous. And I think, you know, that's probably intentional. But even that, even if she is queer coded, I don't necessarily think that that's what makes the movie mm-hmm. have a queer sensibility because you can be explicitly queer and not have a queer sensibility like your movie or your your uh-huh. media can. I think we see that a lot today where they'll kind of like slot gay characters into a very like heterosexual framework and it doesn't necessarily read as queer to me. It reads like a straight person mm-hmm using gay people in their movie. Um, that's um, So I think in this case, though, there is a queer sensibility. Um, and and what, what, a, makes, what makes camp queer? Well, I think camp is queer because in its origin, it was used to define ho- homosexuality yeah. um, specifically. So it's always been queer. Um, it's always, you know, been associated with the queer community. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, just in its origin, it's, it's, that's where it came from. So that's what, you know, makes it queer. Um, but I think it goes beyond just the campiness of the movie, which is undeniable. I think it also goes to the way that the story is being told. Um, and this is where maybe I'm now reaching, as I've just said that everybody <laughs> else reach. has been reaching, but I'd like to put my own two cents in yes, um, please. to this reaching narrative. And that is that I think any horror film that takes a bit more of a complex or nuanced look at the villain is just Mm. in a, it's, I keep saying inherently, so I want to think of a better word, but (laughs) it just feels queer to me in how it's approaching the story. If I think of movies like The Conjuring, um, or any of the movies in the Conjuring universe. Because, you know, the Conjuring universe, metaverse, whatever, has Annabelle, which is a killer doll, but that movie does not seem queer to me at all and not campy at all. And that's because the evil in those movies is so contained and so black and white. It's like, this mm-hmm. thing is evil. It has no consciousness. It ha- You can't have empathy for it. It didn't, it wasn't created out of society. It wasn't you know, start as good and then turn evil. It's just this evil force that this white Christian couple comes in and encounters and takes care of. And then at the end, they like dance to some old timey music and they're like, wow, our Christian white, you know, heterosexual love saves the day again. And, (laughs) but, but really it's because, you know, it's not even the like, you know, white Christian heroiness of, of that narrative. It's that the evil is not nuanced at all. It's this, very black and white evil that um, that has no like story behind it. And as a queer person who's always loved horror, I'm aware that queer people have been forced to identify with the villains for a really long time, um, either because you know um, they're queer coded or because they were somehow cast aside from polite society. I put polite in quotation marks or they, you know, um, were forced to become evil 
by some other thing in their life that went wrong or because they, you know, are, uh, uh, their families cast them aside or something, you know? Um, and so it's, it's very much in the origins of the genre, especially when you think of, um, horror films that are considered those kind of like prestige masterpieces, like going all the way back to Psycho really, you know, is a perfect example of this trend with our, our villain very much being beyond queer coded. Um, and same with like Silence of the Lambs. Um, so it's definitely something that's kind of like been in the bones of much more, you know, quote, serious horror films already. So I think that's an interesting thread. And I've, it's always important, I think, with horror to be analyzing like who the villain is, what are we, what are we considering villainy? And that like informs the the reading of these films. Exactly. And so I think when you are being forced to maybe identify with the villain or you've been kind of trained to kind of look at the villain and think, well, why are they that way? Um, and maybe e try to empathize with the person that no one wants to empathize with. Um, then you want a little bit more from that villain than just the black and white, this is an evil force that I have to banish with my, you know, rosary. So, um, you know, taking that back to Megan, Megan is, um, you know. It's a lot less earnest than those other films that you're mentioning. I feel like yeah. a, there's a line, there's horror films in this kind of... Um, I don't know, camp of Blumhouse or whatever else that are an earnest tale of good versus evil. And then there's the ones that are meant to kind of be outrageous and silly and campy and um, not, they're not drawing, you're not supposed to be like, oh no, is Allison going to be okay? Right, because Allison is also, her character <laughs> Gemma is also kind of the villain. I mean, we have a doll who didn't ask to be made, who was given a consciousness, and tasked with learning very quickly, you know, from this extremely fucked up world that she's now existing in. Um, and all she's really trying to do is protect Katie, which was yeah. her directive. Um, only it becomes corrupt because she's now existing in this corrupt world. And so she's somewhere, you know, between a menace and like a mother figure. And <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, that messiness and that, that you know, um, unwillingness to draw a line in the sand and say this is what evil is and this is what goodness is is queer and if you if you if you match that with you know wearing sunglasses and singing titanium and dancing the in the hallway the, the absolute yeah. best part of the film then like I get it I think that it's warranted it's like the gay hysteria around this movie is warranted because it does all of those kind of like subtle maybe reaching things but then it also is just a fun off the wall movie. And I think if you marry those two things, especially in a genre like horror, which has such a robust queer following already, then like, yeah, it's movie magic. <laughs> <laughs> movie magic. Oh my God. <laughs> so uh, to wrap up, yes, I think it was genius marketing that kind of just ran with something that maybe wasn't fully intentional, but I think there are also things you can read into um, that maybe uh, heighten the experience a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Well, and for me to bring it back to, you know, one of my biggest passions, which is Taylor Swift and <laughs> my personal theories um, about the meaning of her music. It's nice to have a friend for me 
has always been such a queer song. I don't know if the public reads it that way, but I really encourage people to go read the lyrics of that song, uh, where it sounds like she's perhaps at a sleepover, or she's on the playground with a friend, and, and by she I don't mean Taylor, whoever the speaker is in the film, and she says, like, something, something gave you the courage to touch my hand. It is just... I'm sorry, it is not a platonic friendship. It's nice to have a friend is a queer anthem for me. Um, for me personally, as a gayler. Um, so I think I found the choice of that for the trailer. Ugh, just chef's kiss, chef's kiss, honestly. Um, what are you looking forward to in Megan 2? Um, honestly, I'm looking forward to returning to Key West to watch it. <laughs> No, I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to just seeing more, like, what are they going to make her sing next, honestly. Honestly. I also wonder, I wonder how they will kind of, because I, I don't know if the creators quite understood that they were making something that was going to be read this way, because the director is straight. Um, I don't know for a, a fact the writer's sexuality, but... I'm going to assume based on her quote, I asked one of my friends who is gay, um, that she's straight. So I don't know if they knew what they were making. I don't know if Allison Williams knew what she was making. And then it became this thing. And I definitely think someone in the marketing department understood that. So I wonder what they will do with that for the sequel. And also, I don't know, does that then become like exploitative <laughs> or an homage? I don't know. What do you think about that? Now that it's this big financial, you know, windfall. So here's what I'll say, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that you need to be 90% aware, but you have to keep some of that, like, not awareness in order for something to really feel genuine and, in my opinion, good. I think that now, like, they might be too aware and try to speak to a gay audience in a way that will suddenly feel like they are talking less to the gay audience, you yes. know what I mean? Like, it even it even came through in that article with the writer kind of saying, it's about found family. It's like, yeah. you just, just make your movie. Don't worry about don't us worry over about here. Like, we'll find in it what we want to find in it. But, like, don't try now to put all this stuff in it that you think is gay because it'll probably turn out being much straighter if you try to do that. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I worry they're going to like slot in Megan actually saying slay. And like, we don't need to hear Megan say slay because she's saying it in every, you know, every cell of her being. But I don't want to yeah. see that. I absolutely agree. I feel like they're going to try to like, they're going to be like, oh, like, let's really like nod to this like, part of the film but in nodding to it they're going to completely take the magic out of it if that makes you know if that makes sense yeah. Yeah. um it's lightning in a bottle man i don't i don't know if we can replicate it anyway i'm a little i'm a little bit um feeling a bit of trepidation Some about trepidation. that yeah but you know it'll be over a year from now we'll see what they came up with it probably yeah. won't be queer at all <laughs> i feel like, I feel like be... it's gonna be like a backlash where it's like you always see the first film was a hit with gays, and now this one is a hate crime. Like, I don't know. Like, you know? Yeah, the backlash is slowly coming, slowly but surely. This poor director who's just, like, some Australian dude who's, yeah. like... I, I was reading an article from him, and unlike the writer, he didn't really try to philosophize why the film 
had success with a queer audience and he kind of was like the gays have always loved my work <laughs> like other random tv shows that he'd done and, and he basically said i have no idea why it's found a home there but i've always felt very supported by gay people <laughs> i think that okay and anyone feel free to contact me and and debate me on this but i think that is a better response if you think about mm-hmm. all of the you know pop stars who have a huge gay following and their answers to like why do you think gay people uh-huh you know, you resonate with with the gay audience. Most of them who actually have continued to resonate with a gay audience over long periods of time are basically just like, I'm not sure, but I'm really happy that it does and I'll keep making music and hopefully they'll keep liking it. They don't try to change anything to basically cater to or like you said, exploit that audience. They're basically just like, I'm happy that they found a home with my music, with my movies, with my whatever. And you know, I'm, I welcome them. Mm-hmm. It's more of a problem when it's like, oh, like I can sell to these people. Let me now like try to sell to these people because it's like, no one likes to feel like they are trying to be taken advantage of. And honestly, with capitalism being such a mess, I do feel that anytime that I feel like someone, it's like the whole pride thing, right? When like suddenly yeah. it's like this bank is putting rainbows on everything, but it's like, they just want your money. We can tell when someone just wants our money. So, mm-hmm. um, or at yeah, least I like, already, I feel like you- I can you already know. hear the the Hollywood executives like in their, in their corner. How do we make the next <laughs> Megan? What do the gays want? <laughs> like, this is why I can't, I can't get a job. Um, I will. <laughs> I can't handle those yeah. people. I will say that I will remain open-minded and I am very happy and I, you know, I'm excited for it, but I do feel a little bit of, a little bit of trepidation and, you know, we've all been burned before. We can't trust those Hollywood execs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Allie, it has been fabulous to have you on uh, to discuss such an urgent, urgent topic, such as Megan. (laughs) Um... And I really appreciate you coming on. Where can people find you and The Yearning on socials? Um, they can find me at, what is my handle? I think it's <laughs> underscore Allie Romig. Let me just double check like that. Like the underscore for, is before? Yeah, let me just double check that for all the people I know will be clamoring to follow. Clamoring. Um, Huge yeah. audience for this podcast. So it's underscore Ali Romig uh, for my personal, and then you can find the yearning on Instagram at the yearning newsletter, and you can also f- uh, subscribe or just read our Substack at um, the yearning or what is it? How do you is it Substack.com slash the yearning? Honestly, I feel like Honestly, we have a youthful audience. They'll be able <laughs> they'll to find it. Out. it. Um, it's on yeah. the it's on the Instagram. The it's yearning. on the Instagram. The Yearning it's on Substack. The Yearning Oh my god. Who would have known? Who would have know. known? Um, but in all seriousness, if you're listening to this, you should definitely subscribe to Allie and Meg's Substack. It's fantastic. I promise that I'll be back with many more episodes very soon. Hoping to record on, like I said, my new favorite film of the year, Babylon. Which, which I will uh, see. You will see it? I will see it. You guys, it's three hours and eight minutes. So I don't think anyone will. (laughs) And I don't blame them. (laughs) And as always, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Marilyn.movies. Both physical and emotional. (laughs)
and that's that's all I've got for you. Thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. It's honestly like she's part of the family now.